Welcome back to 8079, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 9, Season of the Wolf. The subject is the Lupercalia. I had intended to do this for Valentine's Day, but some research materials showed up late, so here we are. At least still in the month of February, better late than never. It's another purification festival, because you can never have enough of those. Or possibly it was a fertility festival. By AD 79, even the Romans were not sure which. The antiquity of the affair didn't help. It seems to have predated a Latin presence, and some of the recitations were not in Latin. Practitioners had to take it on faith that they were getting words right, or that they were getting comprehensible words at all. Oral transmission of a foreign language over a matter of centuries can bring a lot of changes. Lupercalia, related to lupus, Latin for wolf, having to do with the she-wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, which is a reasonable thing for a Roman to celebrate. The manner of celebration, on the other hand, seems more than a little disconnected from the events being honored. Stripped to its basics and described by Plutarch, it consisted of many of the noble youths and of the magistrates running up and down through the city naked for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. And many women of rank also purposely get in their way and, like children at school, present their hands to be struck, believing that the pregnant will thus be helped in delivery and the barren to pregnancy. That's a little sparse and demands some context. Count on the antiquarian Varro to muddy the waters. The Lupercalia is so named because the Luperci make sacrifices in the Lupercal. Clear as mud so far. He continues. When the high priest announces the month festivals on the knowns of February, he calls the day of the Lupercalia Februatus, for Februm is the name which the Sabines gave to a purification. And this word is not unknown to our sacrifices. For the goat hide with its thong on which the young women are flogged at the Lupercalia, the ancients called a Februs, and the Lupercalis was called also Februatia, festival of purification. So far, so good, or so sparse. Let's hear from Ovid, always ready with a story explaining first causes. There was a grove beneath the Escaline Hill, unpruned for many years, called by the name of Great Uno. Wives and husbands came there together to supplicate on bended knees when the treetops suddenly trembled and the goddess miraculously spoke through her own grove. Let the sacred he-goat penetrate the Italian matrons. The crowd in terror was astounded at the obscure words. Well, one would be, wouldn't one? He-goats indeed. What kind of religion are you running here, anyway? Fortunately, a prophet was on hand and able to calm those present. The penetrating was metaphorical, you see. No Italian women were to be violated. In fact, the goat in question was a sacrificial goat, an offering to the gods. All breathed a sigh of relief. 
But that doesn't get us much farther in our understanding. Back to Plutarch, who tells us that the festival was under the responsibility of the Sodales Luperci, a college of priests specific to this event. Even the specific god being honored is up for argument. So, what it appears to boil down to, in the end, was the wolf's cave at the foot of the Palatine, where Romulus and Remus were suckled, and in which priests kill that sacrificial goat, or several goats, and a dog. There followed a feast, well-oiled with much wine, after which the head priest dabbed at the foreheads of two young men, Luterci, wiped them off with milk-infused wool, and required the young men to laugh. One suspects this was making a virtue of necessity if the high spirits of young men who have had too much wine to drink are anything to go by. Once blooded, then dabbed, and having laughed, the young men, leaders of two teams of men, Luperci Quintili and Luperci Fabii, a reference to followers of Romulus and Remus, would prance and gamble about the Valentine, or would run up and down the Via Sacra, dressed only in loincloths made from the dead goat's hide, or possibly nothing at all, striking at women, and maybe men, with strips from the dead goat. Sounds unpleasant, but also put forward in the spirit of, say, a college fraternity feeling its oats. Granted, flagellation has played a role in various religions over time and around the world, but as we are talking about freshly flayed goat skin, something with the consistency of wet spaghetti, the likelihood of succeeding in drawing blood would seem pretty slim. Welts, maybe. But the notion of seriously wailing on random women as part of a by-now obscure holiday, well, make up your own mind about that. A day-long affair, goat-killing in the morning, athletic competition until lunch, a well-wined lunch, and in the afternoon, the main event, such as it was, bothering women. Or not bothering, the idea being that this ritual, if you can call it that, was a way to ensure easy childbirth, and therefore sought out by interested members of the crowd, and presumably avoided by others. Ovid, always one for the prurient detail, suggests that the willing bared their backs for operation. One may be permitted to expect exaggeration at best. Later reports mention slapping outstretched hands, low five as it were, certainly more dignified. The day ended with all team members filing back to the forum and then home to sleep it off. Who exactly were the young men? Initially, members of the Sodales Luperci were patrician only, mostly legacies from the top of the top, and not many of those. But over time, membership broadened to include equestrians and then plebeians. And there went the neighborhood. Two notable names crop up. Quintus, nephew of Cicero for one. Cicero's family, decidedly not patrician, was rising socially. 
he a new man, and he finds his nephew's interests, even excitement, in being part of the Sodales Luperci to be poor form. Not the fraternity Cicero would have chosen for the young man. He also frowns on the boys borrowing money to be part of the arrangement. But food, wine, banquet tables, flatware and crockery, cooks and waiters, sacrificial goats and dogs do not come for free. Fees involved would make interesting reading. Why should Cicero care? The year was 44 BC, and the old traditions were being, let us say, interfered with by none other than Mark Antony. There are a few accounts, and Cicero has much to say on the subject. He notes that Antony was nudus unctus ibrius, naked, oiled, drunk, and leader of one of the Luperci packs, but not one of the centuries-old teams, the Fabii or Quinctalii. Oh, no. He was in charge of a new team established that year, the Luperci Iulii, or Iuliani. And where was Julius Caesar himself but on the rostra, a nearly four-meter-high platform of a victory, sitting on a gilded chair, sporting a purple robe, gazing down at the crowd. Subtle it was not. We read of an Antony associate being raised up to the rostra and depositing a diadem wreath to lay at Caesar's feet, asking Lepidus to put it on the balding man's head. Of the naked and well-oiled Mark Antony appearing on the rostra and placing the diadem on Caesar's head. Mixed shouts from the crowd, some applauding, some saying Caesar should reject it. Caesar tossed it into the crowd, calling for it to be placed on the head of Capitoline Jupiter. Others call for it to be put on a statue of Caesar. The upshot was that Caesar would not be a dictator, that the Republic yet lived. A month later, Caesar was killed. Politics ruin everything. Under those circumstances, the future of the festival was a little problematic. Scholars used to say that the event was banned for a few years, and that Augustus, Caesar's nephew, may have had a hand in that. An alternate view is that Augustus merely set some boundaries. Clearly, the festival had some serious energy to it. Augustus decreed that young men without beards were forbidden from taking part. Too sexy for their thongs, or too young for such adult behavior. No specific is given, but Augustus was known for being straight-laced. On the other hand, he did want Rome's elite to marry and have more Roman babies. And if that meant young men slapping young women with strips of goatskin, who was he to say no? The gods work in mysterious ways. And so it went on, celebrated without a noteworthy incident in our year of AD 79. Given that Romans were not all that keen on drunkenness or public nudity, it is perhaps little surprising that it went on as long as it did. Interestingly, the festival continued even as Christianity became a force in Rome. We have a letter from Gelasius, Bishop of Rome, from 492 to 496. Authorship is contested, but never mind. 
who was fighting the good fight against paganism in general, and this particular expression of jollity in particular, disapproving of the whole matter. Not at all a stupid man, he wrote what can be seen as a prosecution case, trying to convince fellow Christians to stay away from such things. From him, we hear that what had once been something for high-born sons of good family to undergo was now being performed by hired actors, mimes, and other such undesirables. Vile and uncouth persons, debased and low. A good Christian Rome should have no truck with such things as wine-soaked young men running about naked or half-naked, waving bloody leather and hitting people and apparently having a cheery good time of it. One can see how, depending on one's point of view, the issue could have been divisive in a changing society like Rome's. In the event, he failed to stop it, and seems to have made no further effort to do so. Some things have to be sorted out on their own, and it generally takes more than one man to overthrow the traditions of a thousand years. The Western Roman Empire would continue its decline and fall in good time. It's not as if you see this sort of thing going on in that city these days. Except, well, the idea of this episode was to line up with Valentine's Day, to which Christian holiday some people liken the Lupinaria, which makes you wonder what kind of Valentine's Days they are used to. From the descriptions, this celebration takes on something of a Mardi Gras flavor, a carnivale, an exception to day-to-day -day life. It's too much to suppose that Mardi Gras had its beginnings here, and I wouldn't suggest it seriously. But it would make for a pleasing sort of symmetry. After all, Christmas is said to be the appropriation of the December feast of Saturnalia. But that's getting a bit fanciful, I think you'll agree. Next time, as promised, we enter the month of March. Once upon a time, the beginning of the Roman year, on account of spring putting out its first feelers, purified spirit, and fresh soil time for the farmers to get things started. As a reminder, contributions to help underwrite the production of this series are more than welcome. It doesn't write or perform itself, and it doesn't survive on the internet without some cash outlay. If you're in a position to help, the donation button will get you to Patreon or buy me a beer. If you're a little short just now, an upvote or mention would not be unwelcome. Until next time, thank you for listening.